Well, I love that song because it really is the song of every one of us. Uh, you could title that song, we just sang the prodigal song, because it just tells the story of, of all of our lives, right? That we wandered away from the Lord and uh, we saw the sinfulness of our ways. God opened up our blind eyes, our deaf ears, and he brought us to repentance. And uh, now we are here with nothing else to say but all we have is Christ, and he's enough. And so with that song as our background this morning, or this, this evening, I'm used to preaching in the morning, aren't I? Um, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be looking um, this evening at verses 11 through 32. I would assume that everyone here tonight has at one point in their life heard this story. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Father, we all know that you are the father in this story. And what an amazing picture of your extravagant, even outrageous love for us. No words that I could say could begin to adequately explain, Lord, this beloved portion of your word, but I pray that as we look at it in more depth tonight, that you would open up our understanding, Lord, by your spirit, that we would see things maybe we've never seen before in this text, Lord, that we would 
um, make application of this text in ways maybe we've never applied it before. And so we need your help now. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter, Luke chapter 15, is considered by many Bible scholars to be the greatest chapter in all the Word of God. J.C. Ryle, a great pastor of the, and preacher of the past, said this, quote, there's probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men than Luke chapter 15. And here we find the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, which some would claim even to be the greatest story ever told, period, in the history of mankind. And what is unique about this parable is that it's a microcosm of the Bible. It's a miniature version, if you will, of the entire story of the Bible. You say, well, what's the story of the entire Bible? Well, it's all about God's plan of redemption. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, what we see is God seeking and saving lost sinners through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And this parable unforgettably illustrates a number of key truths related to the doctrine of salvation. For example, it, it, it informs us about the lostness of man and sin. It also uh, teaches us what repentance looks like. Uh, it also shows us the forgiveness that God provides us. And it also uh, just shows us the joy of salvation, not just the joy in our hearts, but the joy in heaven, the joy in God's heart, how happy God is when a sinner like us repents. But I think the greatest truth that this story illustrates is the unbelievable, inconceivable, incredible love of God for the lost. And and this parable, along with the two that immediately precede it, the parable of the lost sheep, verses uh, 3 through 7, and, and the, st- uh, the parable of the lost coin, verses 8 through 10, uh, these three parables form a magnificent portrait of the heart of God for sinners. And it, really, in these three parables that, that, that come in this series here, one after the other, Luke, I think, is like a, a play director uh, who creatively directs this three-act play that beautifully and, and vividly portrays God's incredible love for sinners. And the first act is set in a green pasture on a hillside, and the main characters are a shepherd and a lost sheep. And you're familiar with that story. A shepherd in verse 4 loses a sheep, and he leaves the 99. He has 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 behind, and he goes after that one sheep. And when he finds that one sheep, he rejoices. I tell you, verse 7, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The second act is set in a humble home in a village. And the two characters are a woman and a lost coin. And here's a woman that has 10 silver coins and she loses one. And what does she do? She lights a lamp and she begins to sweep the house. When she finds it, she rejoices. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Great stories, but they were really just the opening acts. You know, the, the real show is about to begin when you get to verse 11. If you've been to a concert, right, the, they always leave the best for last. And, and the, 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 uh, you know, the first two uh, openers, you know, are kind of secondary, but everything leads up to, the, to the, the big crescendo, right, the main attraction, the central attraction is the, is, the, is the cover band, if you will. And so that's Act 3 in verses 11 through 32, and it's set in a wealthy home in the country. And the characters are a father and his two sons. Now, the, the key to understanding the profound lesson that Jesus intended for us to learn from the series of simple everyday stories, and particularly this last one, 
of the prodigal son uh, is found, the key is in verses 1 and 2. And again, remember, context is everything. And so just look at verses 1 and 2 with me and tell me that this does not just unlock the meaning of these three parables. Verse 1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Doesn't that just open up the meaning of these three parables that we just briefly looked at? You've got the, the tax gatherers and the sinners who were flocking to Jesus to hear his message of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And many of them were repenting of their life of sin and coming to faith in Christ. And while all this was happening and, and heaven was rejoicing, the Pharisees and the scribes were watching from a distance. And they were criticizing Jesus for hanging out with this riffraff, these people that they hated, they despised, because they thought that God despised them and that God wanted to destroy them. Uh, you know this was the attitude of the Pharisees. It's, this is not the first time that we're introduced to that. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27, we hear this, see the story of Levi, one of Jesus' disciples, It says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, after that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. What a great example Levi was. The first thing that he wanted to do after he got saved was to throw a Jesus party and to introduce all of his pagan friends, formerly pagan friends, right, to Jesus. And so he invites all of his friends over and he invites Jesus and says, hey, I want you guys to meet Jesus. This guy's changed my life. It's a great example of, a, of evangelism. And the Pharisees, verse 30, and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, I think that was a underhanded way of saying, I didn't come to save you guys because you're righteous, self-righteous, but I came to save those who understood how wretched they really are. And so Jesus uh, told this parable back in Luke chapter 15 to reveal God's heart for lost people and to rebuke the Pharisees' heart for lost people, to to contrast the right heart attitude towards sinners with the wrong heart attitude. And I think it's important that we don't overlook the obvious connection that Jesus made between verses 1 and 2 and verse 11. Notice how this story begins. And he said, a man had what? Two sons. The story is not just about a son who ran away from home and squandered his father's inheritance and wild living and then came back home. That's the part of the story that we all know and love, right? But that's only half the story. And yet that's the part of the story that is usually emphasized so much that the second son is completely forgotten about or overlooked. And the older brother in this story is one of the main characters, and he plays a major role in the overall lesson of this story. This story is not about one lost son, but about two lost sons. You have the prodigal son in verses 11 through 24, who represents the tax gatherers and the sinners from verse 1. And then you've got the critical son. Verses 25 through 32, and he represents the Pharisees and the scribes who Jesus has mentioned in verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter. And so let's take uh, some time tonight just to look at these two sons. I wish we had two weeks to do this and we could look at the prodigal son tonight and the critical son next week, but we don't have that luxury, so we're going to try to get it all in tonight, and hopefully we'll still have time for a game of dodgeball when it's all over, okay? So let's look, first of all, at the prodigal son, the more familiar half of the story, verses 12 and 13. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So Jesus begins telling this story. and He described a young man, likely a teenager, who was chafing under his father's authority. He was sick and tired of living according to the strict rules and regulations, or so he felt they were. He he couldn't wait for the day when he could move out of the house, and he thinks that the answer to all of his problems is to be out of his his house, out from under his parents' authority, and out on his own, free to do whatever he wants, with whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Hopefully it doesn't describe any young people here this morning, or this evening, I should say, Right? that's what you think, that the answer to all your problems is just getting out from under my parents' authority, getting out from under, getting out of my own. That's what this guy thought. And he got so impatient that he, he makes an unbelievable request. He had the audacity to tell his dad that he wanted his share of the inheritance right now. Pay up, dad. I'm ready. I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't wait Any longer, I'm out of here. Well, according to Jewish law, this son was entitled to a third of his father's estate, and his older brother brother would would be entitled to two-thirds of it, but this would only have been divided up after the father died. And so this, this, this father's younger son couldn't wait for him to die. And this was not only very selfish and arrogant to request this, but it was also extremely ungrateful and disrespectful to his father. I mean, this was like the insult of all insults. And I think the father would have been totally in the right if he said, why, you you ungrateful, selfish, good-for-nothing kid, you're not getting anything with an attitude like that. In fact, I'm going to take you out of the inheritance. And yet that's not how the father responded. The father responded very graciously and generously to his rebellious son and gave him what he asked for. Why? Because that's our heavenly father. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to treat their enemies, he said this in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. In other words, you will demonstrate to people when you act this way towards them that you are a Christian, that you're a child of God, you're a son or daughter of God. Why? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so Jesus was telling the story about this father who was reflecting the character of God, um, who Jesus said himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men, and he's merciful. Well, not long after this self-absorbed rebel packed his bags and moved out, And he went as far away from his father as he could get. And notice it says he squandered his estate with loose living. He lived wildly and wastefully, and he ended up blowing his entire inheritance. I mean, he may have gone out and bought the brand-new fuel-injected chariot, the trendiest robes, the hottest new sandals, ate at the most expensive restaurants, stayed at the most luxurious hotels. I mean, he was living it up. He was having the time of his life until he ran out of money. And this is a good reminder of Hebrews 11.25 that talks about the passing pleasures of sin. Don't let anybody tell you that sin is not pleasurable. It is pleasurable. But it's passing. It's fleeting. It won't last. And this young man found out that the scriptures are true when they say the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, 15. Adversity pursues the sinner. Proverbs 13, 21. 
Those are true statements, that the way of the transgressor is hard. If you choose to go your own way, to transgress, to to violate God's commands, you're just going to have a hard time. And adversity pursues the sinner. If you set your heart on sin and say, I'm going I'm to just, listen, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. That's really what the choice you're making. Adversity pursues a sinner. This is exactly what the prodigal son found out. And, and, and sadly, he had to find it, out, find it out the hard way. Notice verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into, this field, into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods at the swine reading, and no one was giving anything to him. So here's God in his sweet providence allowing a famine to occur in the very country that this guy was at at the time and at the very time when he had used up all his money. And so things were really bad for this guy. He was out of money, out of work, out of food. And he was finally able to convince someone who lived in that country to give him a job feeding his pigs which would have been the most degrading occupation imaginable for a Jew. I mean, from childhood, every Jew was taught from the Old Testament that pigs were unclean. The law actually said, cursed is the one who raises pigs. And so Jews normally had absolutely nothing to do with pigs, but this guy had sunk so low, he was not only taking care of pigs, he was contemplating eating with pigs. He never actually ate pig slop. It says that he was longing to eat it, but no one would give him any. I mean, you know you're in bad shape when pigs are better cared for than you. When pigs are eating better than you're eating. You're in bad shape. And I think the only thing stronger than this guy's hunger pangs at that point were his guilt pangs, his pangs of guilt. When this guy left home, things seemed to be going great at first, just like he, like he had expected them to. Had all this freedom. Uh, he could do anything he wanted. Had all this money. Make all his decisions by himself. But then his life slowly started to spiral downward until he finally hit rock bottom. And that's when he came to his senses. Verse 17, it says, But when he came to his senses... Listen, sometimes this is exactly what it takes for someone to come to their senses. They have to end up in the pig pen of life before they wake up and realize that they need to get right with God. And we need to realize that that sin is like a psychosis. It's like a mental disorder, if you will. It keeps us from thinking straight. It, it, It keeps us from thinking rationally. But difficult circumstances have a way of snapping us out of this, this groggy state of mind so we can actually see what our sin is doing to us. So it says he came to his senses. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to come to your senses? Well, just, just practically, it, it just means to, to stop and consider what you're doing and where you're heading. That's what it means to come to your senses. Like, well, what am I doing? And if I keep doing this, this is where it's going to lead. And you see, when the party is cranked up and everybody's having a good time, you don't have time to stop and think. You're having too much fun. But when the music stops and the keg is empty and your friends all go home and your lover walks out on you and you're left all alone with nothing but the echo of your own thoughts just ringing in your head, that's usually when you realize it doesn't make sense to be living the way you're living. And for the first time in this guy's life. He saw things for what they really were. Finally, everything made sense to him. He came to his senses. He realized what he had done and what he needed to do. And I think verses 17 through 20 provide a a powerful description of repentance. Very practically, what does it mean to turn away from sin and turn back to God? Let me just read this and, and, and think about it as a, as, as a definition of repentance. 
But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. There's several things that he realized. In verse 17, it says he realized his foolishness, his foolishness. And I think the first mark of genuine repentance is recognizing the foolishness of running away from your father, God, not honoring him and giving him thanks, living for yourself. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? And so he acknowledged his foolishness, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools. And so what does repentance look like? It, 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 you acknowledge your foolishness. Secondly, he acknowledged his sinfulness. Verse 18 I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Notice what he emphasizes here. He recognized his sinfulness, not just against his dad, but that he had ultimately sinned against who? God. And I think that's the second mark of genuine repentance. It's recognizing your sinfulness. Psalm 51, verse 3, David said this, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So genuine repentance doesn't just see the sin against the individual. It sees the sin ultimately against God. Thirdly, he recognized his unworthiness. His unworthiness. Look at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I think the third mark of true repentance is recognizing our unworthiness to be associated with a holy, awesome God. You remember Peter when Jesus performed that miracle of catching all those fish and and in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter's response was this. It says, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Go away from me. Now, this is fascinating because originally this guy demanded his right to his inheritance as a son. But now he considered himself unworthy to be called a son. He was willing to work for his father for room and board. I'll live out in the bunkhouse, Dad. You can just treat me like one of your slaves because I'm worthy, unworthy to be considered your son. Talk about humility. But notice the beginning of verse 20. He says, so he got up and came to his father. See, it wasn't enough just to think about these things. He needed to act on them. Some of you have had similar thoughts as he expressed here in verses 17, 18, and 19. You've thought all these things to yourself. You know you're not where you need to be with the Lord and you're sinning against God and that you're completely unworthy and you're acting foolishly and you've had all these thoughts go through your mind, but you've yet to act on them. And see, it's more than just thinking It's it's not just your thinking needs to change, right? But your actions need to change. And so that's what he says. So he got up and came to his father. He wisely and humbly returned to his father with the purpose of sincerely and completely confessing his sin to him, seeking his forgiveness, and submitting to his father as one of his slaves. I mean, this is a beautiful description of what repentance looks like, what it sounds like, what it acts like. 
I think this is a powerful picture of a person becoming a Christian. This, this is a person getting saved here. Well, let's see what God is like when a person repents and returns home to him. Verse 20, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The fact that the father saw him tells us that this father had been watching and waiting for his son to come home. He may have looked for him on a daily basis off across the horizon and thinking to himself, maybe today, maybe today. And it says he had compassion. He had compassion. He, he, he didn't see his son and go, oh, that boy, oh man, when he gets here, I'm going to... That's not at all what his heart is. He said he had compassion. I, I assume that tears welled up in his eyes when he saw his broken, disheveled son staggering down the road, clothes tattered and, and torn and a, a life wasted. And this is remarkable. Notice it says his father saw him and felt compassion for him and what? What does it say? Ran. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. He didn't even wait for his son to get them. He ran out to meet his son. And in that culture, it was considered undignified and shameful for an older man to run in public. But this father didn't care about proper decorum at that moment. He couldn't get to his son fast enough. And when he got to him, he embraced him. He, he kissed him. He hugged and kissed him repeatedly. And notice the son, his first reaction is, is, is to, to begin to recite his repentance speech, which he had probably rehearsed over and over again in his mind on those many miles back to his father, but his father didn't even let him finish. He interrupts him. Notice he says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Does that sound familiar? Those were the things he was saying when he was coming to his senses, and he's repeating these now to his father. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. A title I had thought about putting on this um, sermon was celebrating God's outrageous grace. That's the profound eternal lesson, I think, from the stories. It's all about celebrating God's amazing, unbelievable, outrageous, scandalous even, grace. That'll make more sense as we continue why I chose to use those words. But the dad here gives his son, hey, he doesn't want him to hear his son's speech. He's like, hey, slaves, let's go, servants. Let's, let's get a party together. Hurry up, quickly. And, and so he gives him, his son, the royal treatment. He gives him a robe, puts the best robe on him, which was a, a sign of honor. He said, hey, put this, this ring on his, uh, on his hand, which was a, a sign of authority. This was sonship. He was returning as a son, uh, not a slave. He, he said, bring sandals and put them on his feet. That meant, that meant he wasn't going to be a slave because slaves ran around barefoot in those days. And, so, and, and then finally, he says, let's, let's bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The fattened calf was the the, the, the special animal that was saved for uh, an extra special occasion like this. And so the father was so thrilled, so overwhelmed with joy that his son was back and alive. He wasn't sure if he was ever going to see his son ever again. And so he just pours out this lavish love 
on his son. And everything he did here was a picture of complete forgiveness, total restoration. And God has the same response to anyone who repents of their sin and returns to him. Even tonight, think about this, even tonight, I believe that God is eagerly watching and waiting to see if any of you will come home tonight. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And if you realize tonight that you've gone astray, well, admit it. Admit your foolishness. Admit your sinfulness. Admit your unworthiness. Make a complete and thorough confession to God. And as it says in Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have what? Compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Well, that's a great feel-good story, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came tonight? Well, guess what? That's not the end of the story. We're only halfway through it here. And up until this point, the Pharisees would have considered this a shameful story. Can you believe this dad would receive back this son and and actually run to embrace him? And treat him like royalty. This is, this is outrageous. This is, this is preposterous. This is inconceivable. This is ridiculous. This is, this is scandalous. They couldn't even begin to comprehend this story of the younger son because they had no concept of grace and mercy. Enter the second son. Now they can relate. He's the first guy in this story that they can relate to. And he's their man. At least they thought he was until Jesus got done making the point. And so let's look at now at the critical son, the critical son. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And so here's the older brother dutifully out in the fields, coming home from a hard day's work, and he hears this party. As he gets closer to the, to the house, he hears this music, the band's playing, and he sees people dancing around in the front yard, and, 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 and he's not sure what in the world's going on here. I, I didn't hear about this. And, um, and, and so he sees one of the servants scurrying around, and he, he, he says, hey, hey, what's going on? And the servant says, well, your little brother's home. Your dad is so excited, he decided to throw a party in his honor. In fact, he even killed old Bessie. And you better hurry up if you want to get some, because it's going fast. And so you'd assume that the older brother would be excited too, that he would be happy, he'd be relieved that his brother was safe and sound back at home. Well, that's not at all how he responded. Notice verse 28. But he became what? Angry and was not willing to go in and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. I mean, he was hacked off. He was boiling mad, just like the Pharisees and the scribes must have been as they listened to the first half of the story. I'm like, can you believe this story? This is ridiculous. And it probably angered them. And 
just like the Pharisees and the scribes had stood back at the parties that Jesus was having, whether it was thrown by Levi or inviting, and they stood back. They were unwilling to go in. They stayed outside and had a pity party, just like this older son. But notice how gracious the father is, not just to the younger son, but even to the older son. It says his father came out and began pleading with him. I think this is an example of God or or Jesus pleading with the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, when he did plead with his son, his son exploded. And all the resentment and bitterness that he'd been holding in towards his brother and his father for all these years came spewing out. And he basically says, listen, after all these years, I've, I faithfully served you. Never once did you ever give me a little goat to have a party with my friends. But your other son goes away and blows all your money sleeping around with prostitutes and then comes home and you kill the fattened calf? I, I can't believe this. This is an outrage. Verse 31, again, the father so graciously said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Again, the father just graciously pleading with him to come inside and welcome his brother back and join in the celebration Yes, I know it seems outrageous that I could be so gracious to such a a, a rebel, a renegade, a prodigal like your brother, but that's the beauty of grace. And you need to celebrate that with us. Well, we gain a lot of insight about the second son from his reaction to his brother's return and by what the father says to him. Obviously, he was extremely self-righteous. He saw himself as the perfect son. He was proud of his loyalty to his father. He prided himself in the fact that he had never done anything to cause his father any grief like his brother had. And yet, it seems that he was jealous of his brother the entire time. Like, maybe he would have enjoyed a little piece of that action. And yet, nevertheless, he stayed home. He served his father faithfully, although it's clear he didn't do it out of love and gratitude. He did it out of obligation. He was dutiful. This was a drudgery. He viewed it as slavery. He didn't truly experience the blessing and the privilege of being his father's son. He had the mindset of being one of his father's slaves. Interesting. Even though he was a true son, he He was a a slave in his own house. And again, the the younger brother represents the who? The tax gatherers and the sinners. And the older brother represents who? The, The Pharisees and the scribes. And so this was their attitude toward their relationship with God. And it was their attitude toward sinners. They didn't rejoice when sinners came to Christ and repented. They were critical. They were cynical. They were self-righteous. They they viewed themselves as the models of religion, proud of the fact they kept all the rules and all the regulations. They They never strayed or acted sinfully, but their religion was slavery. They weren't serving God out of love and and gratitude, but out of duty and drudgery. This was pure legalism. And sadly, I think this describes a lot of. Christians. They look self-righteously down their noses at lost people and they secretly gloat when wicked people get what they have coming to them. They rejoice in the fact that they're going to get punished someday and there's no compassion, there's no celebration. I don't know about you, but my attitude, my heart attitude towards lost people 
was put to the test this week with that mass shooting in Orlando at that gay bar, that gay club. I, I experienced a mixture of emotions when I heard about that. And I'll admit to you, it wasn't, my, my initial response wasn't necessarily one of compassion. I'm just admitting that to you. And I had to struggle through that. And what's going on in my heart and why am I not feeling compassion, I think, that, that we should towards that situation. And I thought, maybe I've got a little of the older brother in me looking down my nose, right, in a self-righteous way. And, well, those guys got what they deserved. That's the older brother mindset. The point is that the older son was just as lost as the younger son. The younger son was lost in a foreign country, whereas the, the older son was lost in his own backyard. Both of them had wandered away from God. While one was breaking all the the laws, the other was keeping every one of them to the letter. The only difference between these two sons was one rebelled externally and the other rebelled internally. One committed detestable sins while the other committed respectable sins. And yet, The father graciously came out of the house and met them both where they were at. He greeted one and he pleaded with the other. And so if you're a lost person tonight, you're someone that has never truly repented, never truly embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you fit into one of two categories. You may be lost in a foreign country, You may be an unrighteous sinner. Everyone knows you're a pagan. I mean, you're a notorious sinner. Or you may be lost in your own backyard. You're self-righteous. You live a good moral life. You look respectable on the outside, but your heart is far from the Lord. Listen, some of you who have been going to church all your life are just as lost as someone who may have come to church tonight for the very first time. The good news is God loves you either way. He loves you either way. Whether you're like the younger brother or the older brother, God is watching, he's waiting, he's pleading with you to repent and to return to him. Have you ever noticed how anticlimactic this beloved story is? It, it kind of leaves you hanging, doesn't it? I mean, there's resolution with the first son. We know how his story ends up, but we really never hear about the older son. What, what, what happened to the older brother? How, how did he respond? Well, John MacArthur has written a tremendous book called The Tale of Two Sons. And if you've never read this, I would encourage you to read it. It's a fascinating exposition of this parable, an entire book on the verses that we just covered tonight. And in this book, he provides a shocking ending to the story of the prodigal son that most people have never considered or heard before. And based on the wider context in which we find this story, he suggests the following ending. If we were to put something in that white space after verse 32, what would it say? How about this? Upon hearing this, the older son picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees and scribes eventually did to Jesus? They took Jesus and they nailed him to a cross and said, let his blood be on what? Our hands. And so the story ends at the cross. 
And it was through Jesus' shameful, scandalous death on the cross that lost sinners like us can be forgiven for our sin. And Hebrews 12, 3 says this, for the joy set before him, this is Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. He went through all that for the joy set before him, partly him sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but also for the joy of having his sons and daughters around him, celebrating his outrageous grace for all eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story that we've all heard before, but it just seems so fresh as we look at it tonight. And I just pray that, um, Lord, if there are any prodigals here tonight, those who have wandered away from you, who um, just up to this point haven't wanted to have anything to do with you or their families, Lord, that they would come home tonight. Lord, I know that there are families in our church who have wayward children, who, who it just breaks their heart and that they're not here tonight. And uh, I just pray you'd comfort those families and give, give them wisdom as parents, Lord, exactly how to put into practice, how to apply the principles that we see from the Father in this story as we continue to go after our, our, our wayward children and we pray for them and we wait for them to come home. And Lord, I pray for um, just the self-righteousness that is always lurking in our hearts, especially in a church like this where we have been exposed to so much truth and it's very easy to be critical and judgmental and look down our nose on, on others that may not know what we know or live like we live. And Lord, I just pray that we would never be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Lord, we'd always be humble um, and broken and cry out as the tax gatherer did, be merciful to me, a sinner, knowing that we are the worst sinner we know and that we would always show compassion, Lord, to lost people. And uh, Lord, when, when they come to Christ, that we would celebrate, we would rejoice even along with the angels in heaven who are rejoicing when a, one sinner repents. And so I pray you'd help us to live out this passage for your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.